attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. And audiences have been attending to the demon barber and watching him and Mrs. Lovett pie maker for 36 years now since the show originally opened on Broadway in 1979. It's based on a 1973 play called Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Street Street, Street by Christopher Bond. And set, do I perhaps need to remind you, in 19th century England, the musical tells the story of Benjamin Barker, alias Sweeney Todd, who returns to London after being transported to Australia for 15 years on trumped-up charges to take revenge on the judge who had ensured he'd been banished and indeed ravished his wife. If Sweeney Todd is perhaps the most performed of Stephen Sondheim's works, it's a show that has interestingly happily commuted between the theatre and the opera house, which is perhaps a tribute to its remarkable score with numbers like Pirelli's, The Miracle, Elixir, Joanna, A Little Priest and By the Sea, not to mention the ballad of Sweeney Todd, which of course threads its way through the whole score. And perhaps the characterisation too, Mrs Lovett, Beadle Bamford and Judge Turpin, not to mention Sweeney himself, who in a terrifying way in good productions, step by step, implicates us, the audience, in this terrifying quest for revenge. Then there's the highly original style of the piece, a melodrama transformed into a kind of ballad opera with its roots in the traditions of the American musical, but on a subject about as far away from the idea of the traditional happy ending as you can imagine. We've just been saying there is not a glimmer of light, perhaps, at the end of Sweeney Todd. Stephen Sondheim has said that Sweeney Todd is a story of revenge and how it consumes a vengeful person. He's asserted what the show is really about is obsession. Hal Prince, on the other hand, who directed the first production, believed that it was an allegory of capitalism and the selfishness that is attached to capitalism. He described this theme as follows. It was only when I realised that the show was about revenge and then came the factory and the class struggle, the terrible struggle to move out of the class into which you were born, emerged. Well, to help us explore Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, we're joined by David Charles Abel, who conducts this new production for English National Opera, and also by our own demon barber, Charles Johnston, who is covering the role of Sweeney, and Tim Hawken, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. But first, Lonnie Price, who has directed this production, and Matt Cowart, who's been working as his assistant. Will you please welcome Lonnie Price and Matt Cowart. And ladies and gentlemen, I might just remind you that if you look at the screen to my left, you will see images of the show that you're going to see tonight. So you can make some sense of what we're going to see. Lonnie, is this your first Sweeney Todd? No, no, it is not my first Sweeney Todd. Uh, I did a um, uh, two, 2001, maybe, yeah, I, I did a, um, a, a, a variation of this at the New York Philharmonic with, um, are you familiar with Patti Lupone? With Patti Lupone and George Hearn, who was. Um, the original replacement of Len Cariou in the original production, and um, and Audra McDonald, uh, who was uh, the beggar woman, and then repeated that 12, 13 years later. I'm just curious, how many of you know who Audra McDonald is? Okay, more of you, I hope, will get to know her. She's an extraordinary uh, performer. Uh, anyway, I was just curious. <laughs> um, what is it that perhaps makes this a work that audiences keep coming back to it. I, I've, I've seen 13 different productions. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Um, you know, I, and I think yeah. I've seen it more than any other single uh, uh, show. Yeah, 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 yeah. What is it? Well, uh, first of all, it's good. 
Um, uh, there's very few things, I think, that are in the musical theater that are this good. Uh, the score is exceptional. It's a great plot. It's about revenge. It's about um, uh, passion. It's about, um, it's just filled with great, great material. And it, uh, it works in a small venue. There's a pie shop version of it that actually is taking place in a pie shop that's happening right now. Uh, John Doyle did a production with the actors play. It, it seems a little bit bulletproof in a way in that it doesn't matter what size it is. Um, it's just a sensational piece of material. I prefer it big and loud and scary. I mean, I think it's, that's what I, I think it's a thriller. So I'm very grateful to work on a big canvas, but it is also a beautiful miniature. So um, I think it, uh, it gets done a lot. It also is fascinating for directors to attack and um, great roles. Matt, bulletproof, is that how you feel about the show? Uh, yeah, I mean, especially now, because we obviously did it together in, uh, in New York at the Philharmonic, and then as well as the same production here with a new cast. Um, it's hard to do it wrong. I mean, the, the plotting of the story is so good, the twists and the turns, and every time you think, oh, I, I've seen enough of this moment, it comes at you from another direction with new material. So uh, I think it, it's hard to do it poorly. Yeah. If you're, if you're being honest to the material. Lonnie suggested it was about revenge, but it begins, in a curious way, being about justice, not revenge, doesn't it? It's the, it's the transition from one to the other. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, the inciting incident of the play is 15 years prior when a man is sent to prison for the wrong reason. Uh, but it very much becomes about revenge when he learns what has happened in his absence, uh, you know, against his wife and his daughter and the man who sent him away. Yeah. Lonnie, what kind of brief did you get for this production? What was the kind of Colosseum brief, as it were, or international brief? Do it well. <laughs> uh, don't mess it up. Um, John had seen, I think John had seen the, um, I, I mentioned that we did a production of it tw uh, 13 years ago. Then we just recently did one last year with Emma and Bryn, just about this time. Um, and John had come to see it. And then he called and said, I, I want to do it here. And um, I, I've, I, I love this city. And I've been coming here most of my life and to see great theater. So it's a great honor for me to be here to do it. So I was, we jumped at it. Absolutely, and it was, and Emma wanted to do it here, so that was a, a big reason. And and what was the process of deciding how to do it in this house? Well, what I, I, we did it at Avery Fisher Hall at Lincoln Center, which is a concert hall. It is a big, tunnely, three thousand seat, very unattractive concert hall that they keep trying to fix. In fact, they're going to gut it and uh, redo it again for maybe the fourth time. Um, at any rate, uh, so it, that has certain limitations. It's a stage that's very wide, but not very deep. What's wonderful about this house for us is that it's a it's a true it's a proper theater, and um, it's just so beautiful. It's such a beautiful building, but also the dimensions of the stage are much more like a Broadway house would be. So it's 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 it plays more like a a musical play here than a concert, which it did more in in the Philharmonic, I think, wouldn't you say? And we're able to use the pit and uh, we're able we just have more um things at our disposal uh, in the venue to be able to um exploit um and we always also try to approach these shows matt and i is what is the space you're doing it in not how to wrench the space around the piece but how to 
incorporate the piece into the space that you're going into. And um, it, this theater lent itself to doing all kinds of things. It's, I think it's much improved from the Philharmonic and much more interesting here than it was there, uh, and largely due because of the... Uh, to, to, to the space. Uh, Matt, when, when did you decide, the two of you, that what you wanted to do was make the orchestra, not simply the orchestra, but part of the drama itself? Well, uh, we've done a lot of concerts uh, with the Philharmonic, uh, specifically musicals that we're staging with the orchestra on stage. And obviously, the New York Philharmonic is not a pit band. You don't hide them. Uh, and so uh, what Lonnie does so expertly and what we do together is incorporate the staging of the show uh, with the orchestra on stage. Uh, and so when John Barry saw our production with the Philharmonic, he was very excited about showcasing, I think, the ENO orchestra in the same way, making them a part of the action and not just uh, the people below the stage. But, but the orchestra becomes a metaphor visually all the way through the show too. I mean, I don't want to give anything away, but we could say that Mrs. Lovett appears to be making her early rather failed pies on a, a timpani. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the, 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 the thing when... Um, uh, well, you'll, you'll see it very quickly in a minute as soon as you come to the stage. There are ramps through the orchestra so that the action takes place in and among them. And it seems that when the charge when you're doing something for an orchestra, which was the New York Philharmonic, is how do you make them part of the storytelling? So that as Matt so said so eloquently, they're not a pit band. They're not just an orchestra. They're the New York Philharmonic. So um, the fun challenge is how to make uh, the orchestra part of the storytelling. And what we decided, and what you'll see is almost all of the props come from the orchestra. And they're, um, they're scavenged from the part of the orchestra. And this, this particular version has a very specific concept. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but very clearly uh, in the first 10 minutes, you'll get what we're doing. And um, <laughs> that's it. Sounds like a spoiler on the way. No, no, no. I was going to say, you, you'll get what I'm doing. And then what we're talking about in terms of using the orchestra will be very apparent. But there was a, there's a good reason for it. And so finding a way to make the orchestra um, meaningful to the storytelling uh, was the charge to do it when you're doing it for an orchestra. And um, it just so happens to work well in the theater as well. Say a little about the design, these mm. extraordinary um, graphics at the back that look like graffiti, sprayed posters, mm -hmm. um, fury, anger, the kind of, you know, uh, uh, protests against capitalism that we've seen yeah. in various cities. Is, is that the starting point? Well, yeah, I mean, trying to... In doing a revival, you're always going to want to try and make it relevant to today. Why do this piece now? Aside from it's this wonderful piece and you have this great star, Emma Thompson, this great opera star, Bryn Terfel, but why do it now? And so the context for me was uh, in New York, there was uh, something... Uh, uh, there was a, a sit-in at Wall Street. What was it? It's uh, Occupy, Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street, which is essentially uh, all about the um, the disparity in the um, in the economic system, and the zero percent and the ninety-nine percent. And so that it seemed to me that Sweeney was born of, as you were talking about, a class system of um, disenfranchised people. And what happens when you disenfranchise people to the degree that is going on with people not having jobs and not having money to feed their children is uh, it brews a lot of hostility and a lot of anger, and justified, uh, rightly so. So um, the context for Sweeney's being able to take out his um, 
to make justice happen and, and avenge a terrible thing uh, was justified in his being so disenfranchised as a human being in a society that didn't care about him and that the judge who has all the power has um, ruined his life. So we wanted to give that context to the piece. And so uh, there's uh, graffiti with, um, I mean, the one I love here is mind the, um, mind the economic, what, what, mind the income gap is really what our sort of, and, um, and that's really sort of the style and the jumping off point was um, the injustice of what's going on with the wealthy being so wealthy and uh, the proportionate share for the rest of us is being increasingly <laughs> fractionalized and that's, that's where the play takes place. A question really for both of you. Um, this is a production which reminds me more clearly than anything I've seen before that this is a show that has its roots in Bertolt Brecht and Brechtian theatre. Oh, yeah, very uh, much so. And, 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 and you've obviously relished the opportunities mm. that Brechtian theatre has. Yes. Well, uh, there's a lot of direct address. I mean, all of the ballad of Sweeney Todd runs through it, and it's all directly to the audience. Uh, it's very much in your face, and Hal Prince's original production, which I saw when I was very young, uh, uh, emphasize that, and um, I think the material calls for it, particularly when you have a huge chorus, and we're lucky to have this extraordinary chorus of 30, which um, is a, a luxury in New York these days, and of course a 50-piece orchestra, which is... But yeah, the, the Brechtian idea, I think, is implicit in it, though you can remove it. When you have that many people trying to tell you the story and breaking the fourth wall, it's immediately Brechtian. So, it, was that for you about one of the excitements, that you were able, with these resources, in a sense, to, to underline, underscore the kind of Brechtian nature of the piece? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what Lonnie's saying is <clears throat> absolutely right, that the... Um, the, the story needs that. It, it demands it in the way that it's laid out for you. So to deny that would be to going against what the play is trying to do. Yeah. Thank you both very much, Donnie Price and Pleasure. Matt Carr. Thank you very much. Stay with us. Thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest is David Charles Abel, who is the conductor of this production. And I want to say a, a Sondheim veteran, too. Oh. Um, because if you look at your credits, David, will you welcome David, please? <laughs> David, uh, the work never ceases to amaze me, but it does seem to me to be uh, one that abolishes fairly decisively a traditional distinction between the notion of opera happening in one place and musical theatre happening somewhere else in another place. Well, Stephen Sondheim uh, famously says about Sweeney Todd that when it's performed in a theater, it's a musical, and when it's performed in an opera house, it's an opera. And he's not just being glib. Actually, there's a valid point uh, to be made, which is the expectations of the audience are different in the two places. The piece may be the same, but um, in a theater audience is uh, mainly after the storytelling, I suppose, and opera audiences, well, or also after storytelling, and I think probably an ENO audience is more after storytelling, but you know, the classic view of opera is all about the voice. And um, Sweeney Todd is a, is a piece which requires great singing. So you can appreciate it on that level as, as great voices singing great music. And you also have the amazing story that uh, Lonnie and Matt were talking about. And if I were to ask you to describe or to characterize the score to someone who'd never heard this, what would you say? Well, how would you describe it? 
Well, um, so, I mean, it is a masterpiece. It is truly a great musical composition. Um, Sondheim uses themes for the characters and for certain uh, feelings and situations and emotions. There are themes which recur in a not quite a Wagnerian way, but um, themes are associated with characters. The beggar woman uh, sings her alms, alms uh, theme a lot. And actually, there's some very clever thematic transformations in the piece, which remind me of Benjamin Britten. Um, the, uh, again, I can't give too much away, but if you listen carefully to the music, you will realize who the characters are in a way and how they relate to one another. And there are some surprises, which if you don't know the story, um, you might get a clue from the way it's composed. So there's brilliant composition. There are um, brilliant melodies and powerful orchestral music in it. It really runs the gamut from a solo instrument, like you have a harmonium at one point, which is being played in Mrs. Lovett's house. And then you go to the full orchestra when Sweeney's emotions are at their height and when he is singing a love song to his razor and the music crescendos to a huge pitch. And then the entire chorus comes in and sings one of those Brechtian passages you were describing before. So in that sense, it's, it's a big piece and it's an operatic piece. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I love doing it again, like Lonnie, on this big canvas, because it really, it needs it. But it also has moments of extraordinary musical intimacy. Mrs. Lovett by the sea, this sort of moment mm. of, of, of deep, perhaps the only moment of optimism, perhaps, in the whole <laughs> yes. show. Well, she's completely deluded, of course. <laughs> of and she course. thinks <laughs> she's going to live by the sea with Sweeney, which is the last thing that's going to happen. But um, that's a, um, it's a music hall song. Uh, in the great tradition of English music hall. And, and Sondheim did his research very well. He had been coming to London, has been coming to London for many, many years, and loves London. And this, in a way, is a love letter to London. If you, if you hear Benjamin Britten, do you also hear Stravinsky? Do you hear Ravel? Do you hear Debussy? Oh, yes. I mean, yes. someone who is so across <laughs> the extraordinary, uh, really the beginning of the 20th century. Yes. Well, Ravel is uh, Steve's favorite composer. And when I, the last time I did Sweeney Todd was in Paris at the Chatelet. And um, he called me up after the dress rehearsal and left a message. And he said, David, I, I, I have no notes for you from last night. It was fantastic. And I'm going to go take a visit to Ravel's house today because I want to you know, see his house. <laughs> and I want to say, well, he's not home. You do know that. But, uh, no. Um, but Ravel, I mean, he, he loves that sound world. There's a bit of that in Sweeney. I'd say there's more of it in, in night music um, because the, the waltz element in night music is so strong. Uh, a lot of Stravinsky in Sweeney, actually. If you listen to Epiphany, um, there's an awful lot of uh, harsh Stravinsky and sort of Petrushka and Rite of Spring world era Stravinsky in there. Um, Sondheim had an amazing record collection as a child. He knows classical music inside out, and he's crazy about it. Also film music. And for this score, he was particularly inspired by Bernard Herrmann. And there was a, a, a movie called, um, what is that film called that he... Hangover Square. Yeah. Hangover Square, which he saw when he was a teenager. And I think he went back to see it three or four times. And he then went home and figured out what the chords on the piano and he would play it to himself. And it was about a mad composer who murdered people. And I think the climax of the film was there was a concert. And if the pianist stopped, the, the theater was burning down. If the pianist stopped playing, people were going to be murdered. I don't know. It was a melodrama. But it's also and a great London 
story. Hangover Is it? Square. I don't know yes, it. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. From, oh. from by, by a remarkable novelist, London novelist. But that's another story oh, um, yes. for another time. <laughs> and, and actually, I might just add that film music is, is a great influence on Sweeney Todd. And there's a lot of underscoring. And I've had to explain to the orchestra that quite often they are accompanying spoken dialogue. So there are different levels of storytelling in Sweeney Todd. There's, there's dialogue with no music. Then there's dialogue over music, underscoring like a film. And then there's singing. And then there's the orchestral music, which is just orchestral. So we had to learn four different levels of, of, of how to tell the story. Yeah. And has the score been reworked for this production in any Not way? at all, no. We're using Jonathan Tunick's original orchestrations. Jonathan is, the, uh, is Sondheim's main orchestrator. He's done most of Steve's shows. And uh, all that we've done is expand the string section. And the orchestrations are such that, that it works very well with the same number of woodwinds, the same number of brass and percussion, and a slightly, well, substantially larger string <laughs> body, actually, <laughs> which is a joy. And the, the ENO orchestra string section is just wonderful. Great meaty sound, and they play so together. It's, it's been a joy. Do you think it sounds, uh, 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 I won't say better, but it sounds the right kind of work with this size of orchestral input? Well, um, you can't play it like, I mean, you have to have as your model, I think, Stravinsky and, this, and, and Broadway as well, because there are pure Broadway moments. By the Sea is, uh, you know, I said it's music hall, but it, it has Broadway elements to it as well. Uh, and so there's a certain hard-hitting playing in the brass that you need, and even in the strings. Um, but there are also symphonic passages, so it's a, you know, it's sort of a hybrid, really. I mean, it's true that it is a hybrid between opera, symphonic music, and musicals. Should we see the numbers for the, for the principals, either solos or, or ensemble pieces, as having a direct relationship with operatic form, arias, duets, and so forth? There are those moments, yeah. I mean, uh, there, there are discrete songs which are sung by one character, or duets, quartets. Um, but there are also passages which are through composed. The, the last sort of 20 minutes of the piece from the, the wig maker sequence on when they, uh, well, I won't tell you the plot, but um, the, 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 the denouement of the plot and the surprises that come at the end, it's all done in a big musical sequence which is partly sung, partly orchestral, and partly underscored. And um, it's very operatic, it just flows, and it it's really shows Sondheim at his mastery of how to tell a story through music. And the chorus? How does he write for the chorus? Uh, well, in Sweeney, they are, they're, they're a, a, a Greek chorus, of course, maybe Brechtian, you might say, I suppose, um, in that they speak directly to the audience, they tell you about the character of Sweeney, they comment on the situation, um, they also act as players in the drama. They are the uh, inmates of the asylum, and um, they break out into the city during a number called City on Fire. Um, so they take several different roles. Um, and we've been very fortunate to be able to cast that with some of the cream of the West End. Everyone in the West End wanted to be in this show. <laughs> Everyone always wants to do Sweeney Todd because it is the summit of, of uh, musical theater. So we had our pick of the best voices and the best characters. As you've been talking, you've been almost making rather light of what your task is. This is actually an extraordinarily difficult score to conduct, isn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I take a lot of naps in the afternoon, Christopher, <laughs> these days. <laughs> and the last thing is, um, Lonnie and Matt have put you on stage. You are part of the show. I wonder what you felt about that. Oh, I hate being on stage. It's, it's awful. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yes, I, I get there, there. I get to. I try my best not to act. I'm like, okay, okay, just do deadpan, David. Just do deadpan. That's what I say <laughs> to myself. He's perfect. <laughs> totally.
<laughs> um, did you have to be coaxed into doing this, or were you, were you up for this from um, the beginning? No, I mean, no, really. I just, I just did very little, and uh, you'll see. It's, there, there aren't many moments, but they're, you know, they're fun, the ones that there are. David, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now by our two last guests, Charles Johnston, who's covering the role of Sweeney Todd in this production, and Tim Hawken, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. <laughs> Charles, before you make yourself comfy, I, I wonder whether we might, having talked so much about music, we might slightly change the order of things, sure, and whether sure. we can hear the music first. So tell us what you're going to sing for us. Uh, Sweeney at the... Um Towards the end of the first uh, half, he, he, he almost manages to achieve his revenge and is um, interrupted and vents his fury in a number that's called Epiphany, um, which uh, I think should be fairly self-explanatory. <laughs> <coughs> His throat was there and he'll never come again When? Why did I wait? You told me to wait, now he'll never come again There's a hole in the world like a great black pit And it's filled with people who are filled with shit And the vermin of the world inhabit it But not for long all deserve to die. Tell you why, Mrs. Lover, tell you why. Because in all of the whole human race, Mrs. Lover, there are two kinds of men and only two. There's the one staying put in his proper place and the one with his foot in the other one's face. Look at me, Mrs. Lover, look at you. Now we all deserve to die. Even you. Mrs. Lovett, even I Because the lives of the wicked should be made brief For the rest of us, death would be a relief Now we all deserve to die And I'll never see Joanna No, I'll never hug my girl to me Finished! All right, you, sir, how about a shave? Come and visit your good friend, Sweeney. You, sir, too, sir, welcome to the grave. I will have vengeance. I will have salvation. Who, sir? You, sir? No one in the chair. Come on, come on. Sweeney's waiting. I want you bleeders. You, sir? Anybody? Gentlemen, I don't be shy. Not one man. No, not ten men. Not a hundred can assuage me. I will have you. him back even as he gloats in the meantime i'll practice on less honorable throats and my lucy lies in ashes and i'll never see my girl again but the work waits i'm alive at last 
and ein voller Joy. Charles, thank you very much. Um, a really basic question, um, just how difficult is that to sing? Uh, it's just so much fun, you don't really think, you don't think how difficult it is. Uh, I think the problem is that it's, it's, there's a lot of the role, um, and it, it hits the peaks and the troughs and it needs such lyrical, delicate singing at, at the time, you just, you need, in the middle of that, because there's a lot to do, you need to, you need to not Blow, blow it all in that number because it's uh, he's he's got some very lyric singing to do later on in the piece and it's easy to get carried away. <laughs> I'm very pleased I don't have another show to you know I don't yeah. <laughs> brins perfectly well this evening. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that we ever ever in the course of this show like Sweeney Todd? Oh, I think it's, it's, yes, of course we do. Of course we do. He's got the most wonderfully beautiful music. And he's he's the avid, he's 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 the Avenger. He's like Bruce Willis or Liam Neeson or Steven Seagal, and he comes in, and he's 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 an incredibly wronged man, and and he uh, Sondheim gives him this lyric music, of so so you 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 love him, you love him for his lyricism, and then of course. You delight in the fact that he takes his justifiable revenge on these odious characters that he's been given to chop into little bits. Fantastic. But that's the cunning thing about it, isn't it? In the end, we become implicated. Oh, utterly in the most so. appalling utterly crimes. So. No, no, no. But they're not appalling. Yeah, yeah, they are appalling crimes. But, but, and and of course, the the icing on the cake is that you get to eat the people you kill afterwards. <laughs> and that is, it's just. I mean, it becomes a very, a very basic function of, of, I mean, you know, one reads these things about cannibal tribes, is, is what they are eating in some sense, the spirit and existence of the people who they've killed, their enemies. And he's doing exactly that. Well, I'm not suggesting that he necessarily eats the pies, but who knows? Well, <laughs> well, watching what Lonnie and, 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 and has done in this production, I have a real sense that the only loving relationship in this production for Sweeney is with his razors. Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, I, I was trying to think, I was trying to think of, of, of props that are, that are so completely identified w with the character, uh, and the only one I could think of was Votan and his spear. And it, it's, it's, it's not... It's not too fanciful to say that the, and, and you know, of course, you'll see this evening that that the only thing that shines on the stage is the razors, and it's the only thing that that, and he, he sings this beautiful lyric number to them as a sort of, you know, when he when when he's when Mrs. Lovett brings them to him for the first time, he says, oh, yeah, these 15 years, and he picks them out and he's stroking them and and crooning to them, and it's it's. Uh, no, I think he's, he is. He becomes his razors. He becomes, in, in a very real sense, he, he's, he's the cutting edge of, of revenge and, 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 and retribution. And does he ever care about Mrs. Lovett? Nah. <laughs> I mean, she is a really odious character. <laughs> I mean, there isn't anybody else nice. I mean, you know, in, in the piece, really. Well, nice is the wrong word. Of course, it doesn't... We, we've talked a little bit about what Sondheim asked for his singers. Perhaps I could ask you, Tim, what, what from your perspective, as you work with the singers, does Sondheim ask for from them? Well, I think it's all driven 
ultimately by the drama. Um, this is something David was saying earlier on about the fact that fundamentally he's a storyteller. And that's what, for all his mastery of style, the way he can imitate a music hall song or a little lyric aria, it's all driving the plot forward. So he, he makes great demands on the singers. I mean, you heard that this, uh, that piece was the one that David referred to as being a bit like Stravinsky, a bit like the Rite of Spring. It's just full of sound and fury. Um, and actually, uh, he sometimes perfectly happy to undermine it afterwards by a cheeky little line from Mrs. Lovett. Um, you know, run, runs the gamut of styles. Um, but it's all... It's, yeah, it's all about telling a story. And one of the other interesting things about working with this cast on it um, is the difference in background between uh, some of the principals. Because obviously Charles, like Bryn, is an opera singer. Uh, so he brings a certain skill set. And Emma is better known as an actress, of course. Um, and I, I can't think of that many pieces where you could bring people from those backgrounds together and make it work. And I think, I think part of it is the, there's a certain freedom um, with, with the score. I mean, David will know more than I do because he's worked with Sondheim, but I, I, I think from what you said, it's often the rhythm is the important thing. That's, that really drives it. And there's a little latitude maybe with the notes sometimes because it, it varies between speech. Sometimes he indicates it's almost a Sprechstimme uh, thing when there's little crosses um, on the stave. Sometimes it's quite free. So, yeah, it's quite a demanding piece for the singers, I think. And are you suggesting that, that, that it's perfectly possible to, to mix and match and commute between what are often seen as two different traditions, the musical uh, theatre tradition and the opera tradition, that this piece perhaps uniquely works happily either by mixing, as we're going to see this evening, or by being on one side or other of the divide? Yeah, I suppose I was a bit sceptical at first, because it sort of seems neither fish nor fowl, mm. you know. Um, I don't know the repertoire well enough to say if there aren't other pieces that straddle a divide. There, there are probably some other Sondheim pieces, I imagine, um, that do it. But I think, I think um, when you hear it in a theatre like this as well, you see the operatic aspects of it. Um, and it's a, I suppose it's, it's, that's slightly undermined work because obviously we're amplified in here. Um, whereas Charles or Bryn would be quite happy filling the space acoustically. Um, but that's, it's part, part of that's just the sound of the music, you know. Um, and you, you need to have that integrity of sound, and you only really get that through the amplification and the, and the mixing that the guys have done an amazing job doing, actually. I just want to, I want to add something, too, though. I mean, in terms of that, um, in, in terms of the drama and the way the piece is written, I've seen it done in opera houses with just opera singers. And the role of Mrs. Lovett does not want an opera singer. It's a, vo it's a, it's a clown. It's a vaudevillian. And I, it, with all due respect to opera singers, it's not what they do best. And um, frankly, it, it, it undermines the piece. It kills the humor in it. And what's fascinating about this show is that it's hilariously funny. And it's, and it's deadly serious and moving and dramatic. But the juxtaposition of those two ideas, as in Little Priest at the end of the first act, which really is the epitome of the merging of two disciplines and the 
the essential quality of having that is um, it does not, as far as I'm concerned, I've seen it without singers because the story and the plot are so good and all of that, that it holds. But the other way around, it's, um, I think it suffers without um, a real comedian in that role like Angela Lansbury was, who originated it. And it was written on her. That's the other thing about musical theater is, is that um, it's written on those original people, the people who originate roles. It was tailored to their talents. And Steve is, having been in a show where I have a very limited range when I was a kid, he wrote a song, a couple songs for me, and they hit the three good notes I had. <laughs> and they still do. Uh, and anybody who's played the role since... Come on, what's the role? Uh, it's Charlie and Marilyn, we roll along. Ah. It's, uh, uh, but anybody who's played that role... Yeah. It was written well into rehearsals right before we started previews, and he wrote it on what I did best. I was good with a lot of words. I had three good notes. He just keeps hitting them. <laughs> and that's, but that's a very smart musical dramatist. He had this guy. I was going to sing that song. The reason uh, the song in uh, By the Sea exists is he had Angela Lansbury, and frankly, in her contract, she had to have a solo song in the second act. That's why it's there. <laughs> Very but, practical. But Very this, practical. This is no different from the 19th century world they, of opera. Go, this yeah. is exactly what happens if you look at Donizetti, Bellini, yeah. Rossini. They're writing for what they've got. Absolutely. And rewriting for who next comes along. And that's also why Steve's work so endures, is, is that he Will, he sees it not the way it was done originally. So someone says, I'm going to do all musicians and they're going to sing and act. Great. I'm going to do it in a, in, a, in a basement somewhere. Fine. A pie shop. Fine. The opera. Great. He's not, it doesn't have to be the way he wrote it. He wants to alter it and adapt it to the audience in the venue that it is being presented in. That's why his work is alive. And that's why it gets done so much. And I've worked with other composers who want it the way it was in 1954. And that's deadly. That's a deadly thing. David, yeah. you wanted to come back. Well, just to go back to um, the, the question of Mrs. Lovett, the casting of that. Um, it, I've seen it with operatic mezzo-sopranos, and it doesn't work for a technical reason, which is that Angela Lansbury was what's uh, called a belter on Broadway. <laughs> so she takes her, head, her chest voice up to about uh, C above middle C. Do you just want to play where that is? The chest, so she's basically, yeah. Um, speaking in her speaking voice all the way up there, whereas operatic mezzos change to their to change to their head voice, which is here, about E flat above mid, yeah down there. So they have this whole range where they cannot project words adequately, and um, only Broadway belters can do that in the role of Mrs. Lovett. So um, you know, certain it's easier for sopranos that. Music theater sopranos and operatic sopranos are closer together. Men are closer together because they always sing in their chest voice. But mezzo-sopranos and belters are worlds apart. And one other thing I might just add, which is um, uh, as far as storytelling and musical dramatism, I think uh, I, I conduct, conduct opera as well um, in equal measure with musical theater. And um, I believe that Mozart, Verdi, Puccini, they were essentially storytellers, and they wanted their stories told. That was the most important thing to them. They found the best librettists to work with. Sondheim has himself to write the lyrics, of course, but he works with collaborators who write the book, and that's very important to him. So for me, the, di the difference between musical theater and opera is more a difference of style than of what you're actually doing. For the conductor, the job is the same. You're telling a story with music. 
Charles, Charles we've, we've talked a lot about music, a lot about singing, but a last thought. I mean, this is a phenomenally hard-acting role, Sweeney, too. I mean, you're required, you know, really to do an enormous amount emotionally uh, through, the, through the arc of the show, aren't you? Well, what's this has been fascinating for me working with Nonny and Matt is that uh, I, I think there's, there's quite a show-and-tell um, tradition in the opera house, especially in a, in a, in a big theatre like this. And uh, I was lucky enough to, to do two weeks of rehearsal when Bryn was in Australia. And, and just working with these guys, um, they just keep on pairing it back, because I think the, what Sondheim does so brilliantly is it, let the punters do the work. And if you can just stand there and let the punters do the work, they buy into the proposition so much more deeply than, than, they, than they do the, if you're telling them what to think and what to think. So, so what's actually what Bryn does brilliantly, he, he just stands there and allows us to suppose what he's thinking and suppose what he's feeling. And consequently, we've invested in the show in a, in a far more profound fashion than we would do if he was telling us in some way what, what we needed to feel. We have a little time in hand. Um, if you would like to ask any of our distinguished guests questions, um, there is the roving microphone. Put up your hand, catch my eye, and we will direct the microphone towards you. Gentlemen at the end of the third row here. Uh, is it true that there are no surtitles in this production? No subtitles. No subtitles. There are no subtitles. I wonder why, because they're magnificent, very witty lyrics. I just wondered why that was the case. They're all very clearly audible because the the sound people have made a fantastic job of amplification. Good. You won't need them. I promise. Another question in the front row over here. I, mean, I came to see it on the first night and I was absolutely blown away by it. Oh, it was such a treat. I wanted to ask you, Lonnie, how did you come to meet um, Stephen Sondheim? You mentioned that you oh, worked man. with him in Marilyn when we were along. Yeah. Was he a family friend or could you tell us a little bit, little bit more about that? Um, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not, it's not even that interesting. Uh, the... Uh, uh, I, I, uh, a very quick story is uh, his, his show Company, which uh, uh, I, I was taken to as a gift for my 11th birthday. Now, if you know Company, it's about marriage, and it's a ridiculous, inappropriate show to bring to an 11-year-old. But, um, and I just fell madly in love with the sound of his music, and uh, it uh, was a, a great love affair through Company and Follies and A Little Night Music. And uh, I wound up knowing a friend of his and wrote a letter about him, which was passed on to Steve, and then he wrote me back. And so I had a writing correspondence with him when I was 14 years old. And um, he's been very kind to me. And uh, so all through that time, and then when Merrily came along, uh, I auditioned for it, but I got it. And um, then I acted for 10 years, and we did this first Sweeney uh, in 2001. And since then, we've had this lovely collaborator experience, which uh, I was sort of in awe of him. You know, he was a very much a hero worship for me. He still is. Uh, but now we actually, I actually can talk to him and I, I actually can actually talk to him now. Uh, so, uh, but it began when I was very young, when I was, uh, f when the first show I saw of his when I was 11. And uh, I'm now 56. It's a long, it's a long love affair. <laughs> so, but yes. I think we've time for one more question. Anyone else have another question? Yes. Lady in the second row, microphone on its way. Yeah, I saw the show last night and I just found Emma Thompson's performance outstanding. Me too. And I didn't realise that she could sing like yeah. that. So 
did she need extra training? Um, I, I had seen Emma in Me and My Girl when I was here. Matt's so sick of this story, he wants to kill me. When I was about 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I just thought, as I had this experience with Sondheim, I just fell in love with Emma. And I knew she could sing. And so I wanted her very much to do the show. She had been training, uh, which will tell you a little bit about Emma. I wrote her a letter. She said, OK. Uh, and she trained for quite a while. And, and, and I came over. She said, I want you to hear me sing because I want you to know what you're in for. And if you don't like it, you can get out of this easily because I don't want to disappoint you. And uh, there's never been a harder worker. She is, she's downstairs now going through her entire show on the stage by herself to prepare for tonight. Um, I agree with you. I think she's astonishing. And I'm glad you like the way she sings, too. I do. Yeah. And, and those of you who haven't the seat can judge for yourselves happily this evening. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, all thank of you. you. And can I just remind you that underneath you, perhaps under your bottoms, are notices for the other pre-performance talks in this current season. If you've not been, but you come to, you know, we should be very happy to see you here again. In the meantime, thank you for being here, and thank you to our four, five guests. Very much indeed. <laughs>